Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today I'm going to be posting the IG live that I recorded uh, the day that I got off Instagram to prepare for ayahuasca, probably about two and a half weeks ago. Um, I'm, I think, 12 days out from leaving the country and going to Costa Rica and going uh into the jungle but a resort in the jungle so don't get it twisted i'm not going inside of a hut or something i'm not that badass but um i did an ig live and i wanted to post that as a podcast because they're pretty good and i get into flow and i know that a lot of you guys want to hear me yap a little bit more about the things that i've been studying and doing so this is one of the best ways for us to do that And if you would like to support the podcast, probably the most direct way that you can do that is to go sign up for my newsletter at ericgotzi.com, Feasting Fridays. Uh, I also have two journaling courses on there. One is a introduction to journaling to get you started. And the second one is a little bit more advanced where I put you through six days of guided meditations and also introduce you to this really cool program called Notion. And the guided meditations will essentially help you create a inner castle or cathedral that once you tap into how to use it in the visionary space, um, any day that you choose to use it, you can really connect to what is the most important thing for you to do today to be in your dharma. And it's pretty dope. As always, I deeply appreciate that you guys give your attention to this podcast because there is a motherfucking cacophony of things begging and uh, trying to take your attention. And the fact that you bring it here means a lot to me. So with love, hope you enjoy this Instagram live. Namaste. What to do, fam? Uh, this will be the last live that I have on here for probably about five weeks because I'm going to be getting ready to do ayahuasca. And a big part of my getting ready to do something like that is to clear my informational space. And part of the dieta is not being on social media. But I'm going to try to answer as many questions as I can before I go. So the first question is, uh, what does preparation look like for me? Um, The main thing is getting off of all social media. Uh, There's so much uh, junk food on social media that I don't want in my psyche when I bring it to ayahuasca. Um, Another big thing for me is not to read books uh, with the purpose of doing A big part of what I do every day is I spend at least an hour trying to further my dharma through reading. And it's aggressive. um, And it's a way for me to to fill my mind to not feel my body. And so less reading, um, way more time in nature. Um, Just getting out in nature without the intention to do anything reminds me that although I am obsessed with trying to make things better, there's enough that is already perfect as it is and that I can enjoy it, you know? Um, Not eating bullshit, so just not eating things that you know are poison, 
uh, things that did not exist a hundred years ago if uh, corporations didn't have factories to make whatever their things are. And there's even a lot of stuff in the health space that is technically supposed to be healthy. But if you look at the ingredients, it's like 50 or 60 things and none of them have actual real names. They're all chemical names. So I try to stay away from all of that type of stuff. Um, no porn, obviously. And keeping sex to uh, minimum, you know. Um, and then once it gets down to like the last two weeks, um, it's really starting to hone in, uh, like not microdosing anymore, uh, not smoking weed, obviously, probably for the last month. But I still do salt. Um, I think that there's a lot of beliefs around that there's a lot of projected cultural taboos onto what the spirit and God entity of ayahuasca is that I don't think is actually true. And I don't think ayahuasca will be mad at me if I have uh, potassium in my body, you know, and uh, the neurobiology of having enough salt is uh, pretty clear. But that's what my preparation pretty much looks like. What is your number one book recommendation recommendation for awakened consciousness? I really don't know what that means, but the book that most helped my mind on my uh, path to trying to be more awake was Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson. It's truly one of the most incredible um philosophy and spirituality books that I've ever read. And it's funny and it's humble and it has exercises. And if you do the exercises, they will change your fucking life. Like one of the exercises in that book that feels so potent for our times are if you have any strong belief, if you find yourself on the left or the right, Christian or atheist, whatever it is, one of the techniques that they offer in that book is you spend a month only digesting the best information from the part of the argument that you don't agree with. So if you were an atheist, you would go find the best Christian like news sources, the best people on Instagram who have the most potent message that is um, religious. And then you listen to them and you write an essay over the course of that month that is explaining why their side is the right side, is the truth, is accurate. And you really feel in that for a month. And then you do the opposite. And you go back to what you thought was true a month before you tried this experiment. And you do the same thing. And what it will show you is there are truths on both sides. You can be good and be on both sides. The other side is not inherently stupid. The other side is not inherently evil. And if you think that they are, you're probably trapped in a reality tunnel. It's a great book. Big recommend. What are your intentions for this next ceremony? Um, my big intention for this next ceremony is to bow to ayahuasca and ask her how I can serve. I'm at a point in my life where I've been called to bigger things that have felt overwhelming. And I know that in order for me to pursue these bigger callings in a way that don't crush me, 
the treasure is in nature. The treasure is going to be in connecting to nature. And it feels like if I can humbly bow before ayahuasca and ask how can I serve her, whatever her response to me is going to be, will be uh, whatever the practices or the projects that I can be in that will allow me to navigate uh, the really heavy shit that I feel called to try to navigate. What is the highlight of your summer so far? Hmm. I think the highlight of my summer probably is the, uh, what feels like final alchemy around a lot of the uh, points of tension that I've had in my life the last couple of months. Um, I don't feel like I'm out of the fog, but it feels like I have found a base camp and I have a fire there. And so when it comes to existential and personal matters, it feels like I have the most, uh, I, it feels like I've caught my balance, but that I'm still in a deep process of a dissolution that I know will probably last for a while, but I have found my footing and it feels great. Have you integrated your alien encounter? How has your view of the psyche changed? Uh, so for people who don't know, um, probably about two months ago, I went to a like uh, camping festival with a group of about 12 or 13. No, it was probably about 20 people. And uh, it was all outside and it was beautiful. And on the second night, we did uh, mushrooms outside as a group. And I probably did about four or five grams. And as the sun was setting, I was looking up at the sky. I was on my back. And I saw what I thought was the first star of the evening. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm seeing the first star. And then the what looked like a star started to move. And then my next thought was, oh, I'm having a mushroom visual. And then almost as if it was responding to me having that thought, it grew in the density of its light. Like it looked kind of transparent. And then it like started to be like, Whoa. and I was like, oh, I'm starting to have like a uh, archetypical experience. You know, I'm starting to enter into like a visionary state. And then it felt like in response to me thinking that in the same way that if you're walking through nature and you see a wild animal, it feels like it's one thing. But if that wild animal turns to you and locks eyes on you, it feels like it grabs your attention. It felt like this thing turned towards me and grabbed my attention. And I was like, and then it felt like it turned up the intensity of my mushroom experience where I began to see like sacred geometry, like embedded in the sky, except for around where this point of light was. And I've done enough psychedelics to know that once it starts to get it, once it starts to get that wiggly, you let go of the mind, you surrender and you just receive. And it felt like the thing gave me a message and it felt like it conveyed to me you humans don't have to do this alone. And as it said this, two more orbs of light like phased into reality behind it. So now there were three, but this front one felt like it was the one talking to me. And then it said, 
um, you have allies. And then it did this little like twirl thing in the sky and it felt like it was conveying and you can do it playfully. And I was like, I'm fully in this experience. And then it feels like the point of light kind of like, so I'm laying on the ground and there's a tree above me and there's branches and it feels like the light like moves into the branch of the tree. And my mind instantly was like, oh, that was an archetypical experience where a part of me was trying. And it was like I was trying to explain it away. And the moment I had that thought, the point of light moved out from being blocked by the branch, almost to say like, gotcha, bitch, you know? And it was at that point where I fully relaxed into the felt feeling that whatever this was, it felt like it was specifically communicating to me in a way to get me not to try to categorize it in a way that I used to it categorize these type of experiences. And this felt like my first genuine experience with an intelligence that was outside of my individual psyche because it felt like it was purposefully trying to playfully but also sternly convey to me that it was not a part of my psyche. And I still haven't integrated that experience. You know, that it still doesn't fit into my intuition about how this thing works. And a big part of my plant medicine journey is that the majority of my psychic apparatus is scientific, atheistic, skeptical. And there's been this growing bud of um, like, I don't even have a word for it. It's just that there's way more to this than that. And um, that experience falls into that bucket and that bucket is slowly growing and that bucket will very likely grow uh, in five weeks when I go see ayahuasca again. When's the next live podcast going to be held? Would love to travel up to Austin to see you. So if you guys don't know about Conscious Curious, um, her name is Madeline and she's hosting events here in Austin. She's doing some really dope shit. And I will probably be leading one of her ecstatic dances in a couple of months. And a part of the ecstatic dance might be a podcast before. We're going to feel into it and see how we can do it. But um, whether or not that happens, I will actually be working with her to start to do live podcasts. And we will absolutely figure out how to do dope shit live uh, more consistently. Because the thing that I find is doing live podcasts, like it puts you into flow. It puts me into flow and it brings forth some of my best um, art, you know, because there's higher stakes than just being on a podcast uh, with one other person in a room. And so I want to do more of that. And um, it's also really nice, like, One of the things that I have found is that the people who have written the books that I most admire, they tended to be professors for decades where they got to teach this material to groups of people. And I think that there is an intelligence that is conveyed through nervous systems when they get to exchange information where that other person's nervous system is teaching you what makes sense, what really lands, what grabs them. Where do you start to fall off because they start yawning or they start moving or whatever? And it really hones um, the potency of whatever the thing is that you're trying to teach. And because I opted out of the academic path a long time ago, um, I would love to find a way to create those type of experiences for me to hone the type of shit that I'm teaching. 
And so I think live podcasts will be a way to do that. And Madeline's going to help me do it. Do you believe holding on to weight is energetic? What's the best way to release? Uh, when I first read this question, I thought maybe you were asking is like, do we hold on physical weight in our body? And can that be energetic? And it's an interesting question because if you like, there's different ways to look at it, but at one level, uh, physical weight held on your body is literally energy. And, but what I think you mean is like, is there old emotional patterns or traumas that are, um, influencing the holding on to weight. And there's actually a really amazing uh, series of studies that uh, through the studies, they created this survey called the ACE surveys or the ACE questionnaire. And it's adverse childhood experiences. And there's like 12 or 13 of them. And the more you have of those uh, type of experiences, the more likely you are to be uh, addicted the more likely you are to commit suicide, the more likely you are to uh, be depressed, to have severe anxiety, et cetera. And what allowed people to even discover this is a really interesting story. Um, the government wanted to try to combat obesity in like the 80s. And so they found one of the top researchers on fasting and they gave him a bunch of money and he created a clinic and he would bring... Um, severely obese people into that clinic and he would put them through a fasting protocol where he would give them whatever supplements they needed but the um protocol was not to eat and these people would lose 100 200 300 pounds but what he kept finding is once they basically shed all the extra weight something would happen in their something would happen in their life and it would trigger them they would stop coming to the clinic and then they would gain all their weight back and then they would come back in a couple of weeks, you know, full of shame and regret and guilt. And he did something that most doctors don't do. He asked them a motherfucking question. He asked them what happened. And the famous story um, that changed this doctor's perspective on obesity was uh, this woman was like 420 pounds. She ended up losing all the weight, got down to like 140 or 150 and she was at work one day and one of her uh, male colleagues hit on her and it she completely shut down and she like froze and she had to eventually leave work. And she went straight to the uh, grocery store and bought a bunch of food and just went on a binging uh, spree for like 10 days and gained like 200 pounds back. And um, what she realized by going back and talking with the doctor who was leading the study was that uh, she had been molested by her uncle and that um, a part of her coping strategy when she was young was to put on a lot of extra weight uh, in order to not get that type of attention from men and that it wasn't a moral failing. It was a strategic and intelligent response to trauma. And there was another story of a dude who got bullied by his older brothers and he just always got beat up. And so he put on extra weight to feel strong and to be able to move bodies. And he found that once he started to lose weight, he began to feel fearful and he went back and he did it again. Um, and so uh, physical weight can actually be the result of holding on to energy. But what I think you meant when you asked this is, uh, feeling the weight of someone else's emotional state. 
And of course, we can take that on. Uh, I think we take that on to the degree that we either think that we are responsible for um, their suffering or we have some type of hero or healer complex, and I for sure have this, where we think that in order for us to be worthy of love, we have to save other people or we have to help other people. And I think both of those are very likely the response or reaction to whatever type of um, caretaking relationship we learn from one of our parents about how we have to be to be worthy of love or what the type of behavior they um, rewarded with either their attention or their time or, you know, just attachment period. And I do think that you don't have to do all sorts of uh, like sage burning and uh, mantra singing and imagination of clearing your energies to move energy, but that can work. And I think it comes down to, um, can you relax into the wisdom that they have a soul and that their soul is looking out for them? And that if you that, and that the best thing that you can do to facilitate their soul guiding them is to be a honest and kind and compassionate reflection. So really what just that means is just tell the truth to them and that that's the best way that you can assist their soul in helping them do whatever it is that they need to do. How are you feeding game B in your current life? So for people who might not be familiar, one of the things that I'm absolutely fucking obsessed with is um, this idea of game A and game B. And basically, there's a group of um, philosophers who have created this thing called the Consilience Project. And they're basically trying to map out how can you redesign culture in a way that won't lead to us extincting ourselves. Because basically what they are saying is that um, the way our culture is currently created is it's to maximize uh, win-loss situations. So if you lose, I win. And if I win, you lose. So if I make money, you don't get money. If you make money, I'm losing money. If I don't get this deal, you get that. Or it's, it's competition, basically. And that with a society with exponential technology and nations fighting against other nations in a way where they're competing, um, one of the things that could happen is nuclear holocaust. Another thing that can happen is complete ecological collapse because of the way that we are extracting resources from the earth uh, at a rate that it can't replenish it. The third one is biological warfare, and we're seeing echoes of that in our day now. And then the fourth one is the emergence of AI, that AI, true AI, um, might be the worst thing that ever happened to humanity and might be the best thing. But the system is moving in the direction of one or more of those things if it's not alchemized. And these philosophers are trying to figure out how can we redesign culture in a way where we don't fucking destroy ourselves. And for me, what I am doing to feed game B right now is really trying to not add to the pollution of the information ecology. And basically, there's a physical environment that we evolve in and our bodies will evolve through uh, 
natural selection and evolution, but there's also a, a information ecology where all, where all humans are sharing different ideas and we are basically adding to memes instead of genes. So genes are the reproductive agent of biological evolution and memes are the reproductive agent of information evolution. And one of the things that's contributing to our current crisis right now is people's inability to see clearly what the fuck is going on in the world, uh, people's ability to sense me. And each of you have a platform on Instagram. Whenever you repost a meme that is straw manning the other side of an argument or is uh, regurgitating something that is quote unquote a fact that you haven't gone and done the adequate research to go f verify whether or not it's true, you are adding to the pollution of the information ecology. And one of the things that I'm currently most obsessed with is how can I begin to talk publicly about these larger issues in a way that doesn't add to the disinformation, in a way that doesn't add to the bullshit, in a way that can actually improve the conversation. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And a big part of what I plan to do and how I plan to show up when I come back from this um, fast from social media is to really begin to do this. Like, I want to start talking about COVID. I want to start talking about um, masks. I want to start talking about the left and the right. I want to start talking about um, a lot of the bullshit that's happening in the spiritual community, but I want to do it in a way where I'm actually adding to the signal and not the noise. And like one of the things to feel into for people here is like I've spent years training how to think and speak clearly. And I don't even feel adequate that I can show up to this type of conversation without doing more work in a way that doesn't add to the bullshit. And so it feels like a lot of people who are the loudest um, also have done the least amount of epistemological training to um, add to the conversation. There's a great quote, and I think it's by Yeats in his famous poem, uh, The Center Cannot Hold. And like the last line of that poem is something along the lines of, um, the worst of us are full of passionate intensity while the best of us are uh, like quiet, basically. And um, I'm trying to flip that equation. <clears throat> how have you a less controlling mind uh there's quite a few aspects to this that i think are really important um one thing is uh the best base is to start with mindfulness meditation mindfulness meditation that if you even do this for five minutes a day for even a couple of weeks and you slowly start to realize that you think without realizing that you think, there is something thinking inside of you that you actually don't have control over unless you try to have control over it like your breath, you will slowly begin to learn that you can witness your thoughts without 
automatically believing that they are true. So that's a base. A second one that is really powerful is begin to talk to your mind in a way where you can have conversations with it. And that starts to change the inner experience of your mind as something that is happening to you, as something that you can dialogue with. And that can give you a sense of autonomy and purposefulness that can really start to open up new possibilities. And then once you learn that you can talk to your mind, there's all sorts of interesting things that you can begin to do. The first one is uh, using gratitude. You have evolved to see the negative. It is evolutionarily advantageous to not pay attention to anything that is working because you have a finite amount of energy. And so you have been designed by evolution to only pay attention to what's not working because that is where your energy should be put if you want to continue to survive if you're a hunter and gatherer 100,000 years ago. So one of the things that we have learned or one of the things that we've evolved to do is to not pay attention to everything that's going right. And once you start to realize, once you start to notice that you're thinking negative thoughts, which we all do almost all day, and you discover that you can begin to talk to your thoughts, you discover that you can direct your thoughts at time. You can then begin to add in the magic of gratitude. Like the truth is, billions of chemical processes in the physical universe have to be going just right in order for there to even be an earth. And there needs to be an earth and an atmosphere and a sun in order for you to even be alive. So in order for you to even get to the point where you feel whatever you're feeling about whatever you're feeling and you're worrying about whatever you're worrying about, trillions and trillions of processes are going just perfect for you to even have a body. The other thing that's been really powerful for me when it comes to gratitude is uh, for me specifically and the people that I'm close to, everything that we worry about is the result of prayers that we made years ago that have come true. You know, like me worrying about all the meetings that I have this week and um, preparing for the really amazing Fit for Service Summit that we have in a week. Um, All of that is the result of prayers that I had for my ideal life that I made years ago having come true. I live in Austin. I have my dream job. I have this platform and I have this ability to talk and share uh, my craft and my art with people who care about it. And everything that I worry about is because prayers that I made years ago have come true and I'm navigating the responsibility and the power and the opportunities that come from them. And that's true for your life too. You know, that whatever problems you have, if you go back far enough, there was a younger version of you who was earnestly hoping and wishing and praying for a life like you have now. And then the next thing that I would offer to really learn how to control your mind is pay attention to what you are afraid of. And if you can run the experiment of instead of running from what you are afraid of or trying to do things to distract yourself from what you are afraid of, to intentionally begin to purposefully do the things that you are afraid to do. That's one of the things that has most changed my life. Like up until I was about 26, 
Whenever I was afraid of something, I would use my mind to justify why it was the right or rational thing not to do the thing that I was afraid to do. But a part of me knew that I was full of shit. A part of me knew that I was being a coward. And a part of me knew that I was disassociating from the fact that I was afraid. Um, and then one night I accidentally took 180 milligrams of THC and about 10 grams of edible THC is equivalent to smoking a blunt. And I am very sensitive to weed. So it ended up being the most difficult trip I've ever had in my life. And the result of that trip, when I came back into my body and I realized I had survived is I just made this promise to myself, which is if my soul calls me to do something and I'm afraid to do it, I do it anyways, period. And literally a month after that promise to myself, I was working out on it. And then a year after that, I went to Peru and met Don Howard. And then a year after that, I became a coach for Fit for Service. And then a year after that, I started my own company and I left on it. And now I'm here. And it truly has been one of the most powerful um, activities or practices that I've done to begin to change my mind's relationship to fear. So I would recommend those. Are you going into this journey open or do you have a question for her? Um, I don't have any specific questions. I'm going in open. I guess my only question is how can I be of service to you? You know, really just to thank Ayahuasca for what she's already given me. Um, the main reason that I'm going to this experience is because um, Quite a few people that I've wanted to sit with and have never gotten the chance to, we're all going to get together and do this kind of as a communal initiation. And um, this feels like I want to show up to my brothers and my sisters and I want to show up for ayahuasca and ask her, what can I do for her? Can you share a link to websites or blogs of archives of psychedelic experiences? Um, the first one, the classic one, is Arrowid. I think it's E-R-W-O-I-D. And then the next one is, um, I believe it's called like DMT Nexus, but they basically have a huge and massive archive of like every possible archetype that has ever been found in DMT space. Uh, it's incredible. So those are the two things that I would recommend that you check out. Um, one of the questions on here is, how do you talk to yourself through a panic attack or negative thoughts? So this is a really good question. And a panic attack is a specific physiological state that is very different from managing negative thoughts. And a panic attack is so visceral that it's not something that you can think yourself out of. Whereas if you're just having negative thoughts, there are things that you can actually do with your mind to combat that. So if you're having a panic attack, it's very counterintuitive, but um, a panic attack essentially feels like you're dying and your breathing starts to mimic, you know, basically hyperventilation um, and your physiology believes that you are dying. And then the belief that you are dying actually leads to you going deeper into the panic attack to the point where you might like pass out or something. And I forget the name of the psychologist, but he created his own version of an updated type of cognitive behavioral therapy. I wish I could remember his name, 
But he has a famous TED talk where he talks through how he was able to heal his panic attacks. And essentially, um, if I remember correctly, there are ways to train this in between panic attacks. And it's not like you're just going to have a panic attack and be able to do this right away. And maybe you can, but you can also train it. But it's essentially learning how to somatically experience what is happening in your body without giving it a label. So if I ask you, how are you? And you say, good. You actually, in a microsecond, have judged a physical sensation in your body. There's no such thing as good feeling. What it might be is this vague sense of fullness in your stomach, uh, relaxation feeling around your shoulders, and a clear-headedness in your mind. And then you instantly assess all of that and you say, good. If you can learn how to feel into your uncomfortable emotions and just notice them without judging them, a really weird thing happens where they actually begin to like move around your body or they begin to offer up visions of things that have happened in the past or visions of things that you specifically fear in the future. And again, if you don't identify with them and you just continue to feel what is this raw sensation in your body, if you do that long enough, or if you have a therapist with you who's trained in this type of therapy, they can actually help you. But you will get to the point where you basically start crying. Because all of us have years and years of tears uh, welled up inside of us that we haven't processed. And maybe it's screaming. Maybe it's wailing. Maybe it's laughing. But most of us, all of us really have repressed emotions inside of us that we haven't processed yet. And at the bottom of the panic attack is very likely wailing, screaming, crying, weeping. There might be something from the past that you just absolutely have not allowed yourself to face and it's trying to come through. But that at the bottom of the panic attack is a demand from the body to feel something that uh, hasn't been felt fully. Now, when it comes to negative emotions or when it comes to quote unquote negative thoughts, there is a field of psychology called um, cognitive behavioral therapy that's incredibly effective at reversing negative thoughts if it's only negative thoughts and not some deeper somatic trauma, which it often is actually linked to, but still cognitive behavioral therapy um, has been studied uh, very extensively and very well. And they find again and again and again that it's super effective. And basically, cognitive behavioral therapy is learning the top 10 most common cognitive fallacies that we um, think that are never actually true. And so one would be like uh, overgeneralization. Another one is catastrophizing. Another one is... Um, false dichotomy. And you can actually just go Google real quick, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, 10 distortions. And you can see the list on Wikipedia right now. And just knowing that the list exists and that people throughout history have found that these are the 10 most common ways that we lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel worse. And that it's been used on tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people successfully. 
and that every human's brain does this type of sloppy thinking, it can really, really help. How do you protect your energy after trauma made you a highly sensitive and empathic person? So there's a couple of things to feel into here. Um, Almost anyone here who is listening to this podcast who has a really good uh, intuitional sense of how to read people's energy, it's almost a a certainty that one or both of your parents were emotionally unregulated and that you as a child had to be able to anticipate their emotional state before they conveyed it clearly. And that um, that's a type of trauma that you weren't able to feel safe or to rely on your parent to be emotionally stable. And you had to learn very quickly how to read their energy before they knew and that it saved your life. And so one of the things to feel into is being highly sensitive and empathetic is a gift. And the gift is the result of having gone through a trauma. And I think realizing that it's a gift can begin to um, change the stories. If you have a story that it's like a burden or a curse. The thing that I feel into is um, I only take on other people's energy if I feel responsible for them. And like one of the things to feel into is that if you're feeling the weight of someone else on you, you can actually use that as a trigger to show you, oh, I'm doing that thing again where I'm playing out the relationship that I had with my mom, where I, in order to feel worthy of love, feel like I have to save or heal the other person. And that if I try to save or heal the other person, I'm actually handicapping them from having their own transformation and learning how to do the thing on their own. And so you can actually use feeling the weight that you're holding on to someone else's stuff as a reminder that you're falling very likely into a coping pattern that you used to use to get through your childhood where you felt like you had to save the other person to be worthy of love. And the thing that I feel into when I feel that is to uh, relax into trusting their soul and that all I have to do for them is be honest about what I'm feeling in the moment. You know, and to reflect honestly what I see when they share what they're sharing. And it's a fine line. You know, it can't be put down into an algorithm because if it could, computers could do it. And I don't think that computers can do it. Um, but it's a gift. Recommendations on resources that will help heal from a developmental trauma. Um, there's a book called Complex PTSD which I haven't read yet, but a lot of people have been recommending it to me as kind of the ultimate book that's out right now when it comes to um, complex or developmental trauma. So for people who don't know, I would invite you to check out my podcast um, called What is Trauma? But there are specific types of trauma and they're different. Uh, The classically understood type of trauma that most of us think when we think of trauma is technically called shock trauma. And it's where a single acute situation happens that basically freezes the human organism to the point where it gets stuck in time at that event because the stimulus was so overpowering. And so that might be like a gunfight 
or a bomb going off in a war. It might be a very powerful uh, sexual assault or physical abuse where you were held down or you were paralyzed by fear and you weren't able to act. And um, somatic experiencing is a specific type of therapy for that type of trauma that's incredibly powerful. And essentially it comes down to, can you get your nervous system to feel safe enough to revisit the energy of that moment that got stuck and then process it, allow it to move through your body? Like maybe you needed to fucking scream and you didn't scream. Maybe you needed to run away and you didn't run away. Uh, most of the time what happens when that type of trauma is being healed is people go through tremors and seizures, or it looks like they're having a seizure, but really their muscles are twitching and um, releasing the trapped energy that got stuck in that part of the body as a coping or protective reaction to whatever the stimulus was. Developmental trauma is much more sticky. Uh, developmental trauma normally arises when the source of our trauma was also one of our caretakers because one of our bio one of our biological drives is whoever our caretakers are we have to attach to them or we die and so if your caretaker was abusive or was the source of trauma it creates this really uh sticky neural network in your body that basically says the thing that hurts me is also the thing that i need how can i figure out how to endure the hurt because i need this thing and your nervous system will start to associate um the things that hurt me with the things that i need to go or the things that wound me with the things that i need to go be around and it's a long road, but it absolutely is possible to um, alchemize that to the degree where you can use that wound as a womb for your specific type of art to be put into the world. Like one of the things that I think is really important for people to connect to is it's not about healing trauma so that you can be a quote unquote normal person. There's a great quote that I saw the other day and it's like, um, my greatest sin uh, is when I catch myself being normal or some shit like that. But that, so it's not about healing your trauma so you can be normal. I think it's about alchemizing your trauma so you can be authentically artistic. I really think that the thing that justifies the suffering of life is art. And um, what psychology tries to do, at least mainstream psychology, is it tries to help people be normal. But I don't think that's how you make people healthy. I think you make people healthy by making them artists, specifically the type of artists that they're meant to be. And I think that that's the ultimate way to alchemize um, our trauma, that it's not to heal it away. It's to fucking make art out of it. Just bought your myth that make us course, but can't access it. Any thoughts? I do not know, but if you send me an email, I will figure it out. What resources do you recommend for being introduced to ayahuasca? Um, the book that is really powerful for me, uh, the first time I went and did ayahuasca was called Letting Go by David Hawkins. And um, truly, I don't know if there is a book 
that you can read to prepare for ayahuasca. What I would invite is um, listen to stories. Actually, no, I, I don't even recommend that. If you feel the call, answer the call. And then as you answer the call, do things to be still. Get out into nature, meditate, pay attention to your dreams. Because once you've answered the call, ayahuasca is talking to you. And she'll talk to you. And she'll let you know what you need to do to be ready. And if you listen to your whisper, to the intuition inside of you, that's the ultimate book. It's not going on Amazon and finding whatever else. What are the signs of early child abuse in adults if the adult doesn't remember anything? I don't quite understand the question, um, but one of the things that I would recommend is check out the podcast, What is Trauma? Because um, I use uh, some of the best books in this space written by Peter Levine and uh, Dr. Uh, Kolk. I don't know how to say his full last name. It's like four different words. I'm sorry, uh, doctor. But I list out all the symptoms that you can find um, that are the result of unhealed trauma. And what's really interesting is that list of symptoms, uh, most of us have most of them. So that's an insight that most of us have something going on in the past. Uh, yeah, Bessel von Dekolk, and I'm sure I said that wrong, but whatever, it's written down in there for you guys. Um, one of the things that's really sensitive to feel into is um, if, if this question is about someone else in your life who's not you, one of the things uh, to feel into is it's not your responsibility to make them remember it's not your responsibility to try to get them to face something that they're not ready to face. Um, one of the things that uh, a great therapist will learn is you don't expose someone's trauma to them. You slowly and sensitively walk with them through their own stories until they genuinely arrive at their trauma when they're ready. Um, an analogy here that really helps me is like a, a bad personal trainer who just got their ability to personally train and they don't believe in what they're doing. They will try to crush you in the first workout to prove to you and to prove to themselves that they're good at what they do. And then you don't show up again. And they didn't actually help you and they didn't actually help themselves. Um, and so like a quote unquote amateur healer slash therapist slash whatever, because they don't believe in themselves and they don't actually believe in you, they will just try to go straight to the most intense thing right away. And then you don't show up again. And uh, that's not kind and it's not intelligent. And so um, if this is for someone else, uh, it is not for us to make them remember. But if it's for you, if you're asking, um, one of the signs that there was early childhood trauma is that you don't remember big parts of your past. Uh, and that can be a scary thing. And one of the things to relax into is your psyche is your ally and your psyche is doing everything it can to try to help you survive and then also become what you could be. And if there are parts of your past that you can't remember, trust that your psyche is looking out for you. 
And as you begin to do the things in your life to learn how to regulate your nervous system more, uh, to begin to bring peace to yourself and your psyche, to bring order to the world around you, that when your psyche can feel that you are ready, it will start to bring this stuff up. And it might bring it up through dreams. It might bring it up through calling you to plant medicine. It might bring it up through calling you to a specific type of challenging relationship that's going to trigger things that you didn't remember you had. Maybe it'll call you to certain books, but your psyche will assist you if you are earnest and wanting to wake up when the time is right. Thank you and good luck. Thank you. That's very sweet. I live in a small town, nobody similar. And the only thing that interests me is fit for service. What to do? We live in one of the greatest times for finding your actual tribe that's ever existed since uh, people got enough resources to start to feel like individuals. And one of the things that I would recommend you do is make a list of the people that you most admire. Go find them online. Go see where their communities are online, you know, that are free. Like everyone's Instagram comment section is actually a place to find your community. If you show up there with love and with the energy of contributing to whatever the message is. And um, you can begin to follow your favorite people. And uh, when certain things call to you as things to potentially join, you can. Um, I recognize that money is a boundary, but there are so many things that are being done that are either free or are very low cost. Find a community and start to get in there. Add dope shit. Get on Zoom calls. Start group chats. You know, maybe do meetups in person with the people that live in your area. The opportunity to connect has never been greater than it is now. And the same tool that we lament for ruining our lives is also the tool that if we came to it consciously and intentionally, we would be able to connect with people from all over the world who resonate with us. Self-regulate emotions, trauma responses, nervous system sources, information. Um, there's a bunch of ways to come at this. A really powerful one is start taking cold showers. Um, your brain will not want to be in the cold shower. And you can start to work on this every day. And like our biology has evolved to love the feeling of getting better at something that we think is meaningful. And so every day when you take a shower, if you try to be in the cold one extra second, you're going to start to um, teach your brain how to be uncomfortable, but you're also going to begin to teach your body how to self-regulate when it's uncomfortable. And then eventually, go get in an, in an ice bath. You can go get a fucking bin from one of these stores for $20 and fill it with ice, or you can fill a tub with ice and get in there. And feel your body physiologically react like it truly believes you're going to fucking die. And breathe. And maybe you do it for 20 seconds the first time. But then do it again. And maybe you do it for half an hour. And then you can slowly start to get to the point where you can do it for a couple of minutes. And it will change your life. Uh, ice therapy and hot therapy. So really hot saunas. Um, 
They're hormetic stressors that temporarily hyper arouse your nervous system. And then when you get out of it, um, your body has to work really hard to self-regulate, to get back to baseline. And uh, it's a way to biologically improve your ability to self-regulate yourself. And it will naturally teach you the mental skills of self-regulation. And then the next super big one is breath. Your breath tells your nervous system what state to be in all the time. And our physiological state will unconsciously breathe us, but we can also consciously begin to change our breathing to purposefully shift our energetic state. Like one of the things that everyone can do right now is you can take four deep breaths with me right now and i'll do it loudly and audibly so you can feel but i invite you to come along so one two three If you were tracking your HRV, your HRV would have already improved in the last 15 seconds. And your HRV is the best biometric indicator that we have of essentially how dynamically your nervous system can respond to either uh, being elevated or being depressed. And once you start to learn different breathing techniques, you can purposefully upregulate or downregulate your nervous system at will. So if you need more energy, you can do rapid breathing, like a really uh, potent old ancient one is the breath of fire. And it's just. And if you do that for two minutes, you're going to feel your body just get a kick of the neurochemicals that you would get if you drank a little bit of coffee. And if you feel that your mind's overwhelmed and you want to downregulate your nervous system, a really powerful way to do that is a big nose inhale, and then a deep full belly sigh. So and if you do that for a minute, you will noticeably shift your nervous system down. And like what's wild is some people might go, a decade and not consciously use their breathing to regulate your nervous system. Or you could do it 20 times a day, you know, and like, it's a really good day when I can feel that my nervous system is elevated and I unconsciously begin to purposefully breathe slower. And that when I'm really tired, like one of the things, like whenever I go shopping with someone, my body fucking hates being in a store. And I can feel it for sure is like a childhood trauma thing. It's got to be because it's so visceral and it's so powerful that I will do breath work while they're picking out clothes, you know, <laughs> and I'll try to bring my energy up. And uh, yeah, breath is free. 
And when you really learn how to use it, it is so incredibly powerful at regulating your nervous system. And then the last thing that I would offer is um, creating an intentional practice to grieve. One of the things that our culture is terrible at is accepting the fact that we're going to die. And a part of our denial of death is our denial of grief because grief is the natural human reaction when something we love is now gone. And grief wants to move through you and it wants to weep through you. And when you disassociate from grief, you have a thing inside of you that's weeping, that's trapped. And learning how to allow powerful emotions to move through you unfiltered and allowing your body to express the way that it needs to express will teach your nervous system and your mind that you trust the intelligence of your body and that you can also hold what is moving through your body. And that's a huge gift uh, when it comes to trying to move through a trauma response. You're going to feel something powerful in your body. Can you allow that energy to move through you in the moment? And then once it's moved through you, then you can begin to think about how to react or how to be or how to change whatever the situation is. Are you going into this journey open or do you have questions for her? I already answered that one. Um, already answered that one. Uh, what it do? Very good question. Thank you. Um, already answered that one. If you guys got questions, drop them in the comments and I'll see what I can do. Ooh, this is a juicy one. What is your take on schizophrenia? Is there a more spiritual implication? This is a super nuanced idea and there's a lot to it. The first thing is that schizophrenia is a word that we use to capture what a lot of people who study this believe might actually be quite a few different neurological and psychological conditions where some of the neurological conditions are genetic, but that a lot of the emotional things that we call schizophrenia or types of schizophrenia might not be, you know, just a genetic failing of the hardware. But then there's even more to it than that, that um, almost every tribal culture that was successful enough to have a tradition uh, had schizophrenics. It's about 1% of the population is where it shows up. And the schizophrenics often uh, were put through specific type of initiatory experiences and they became a type of shaman for the culture or for the tribe that maybe they, you know, had wild visions and their wild visions were actually tapping into um, things that the tribe needed to know. Uh, there was a spiritual movement in the 60s where there were some psychiatrists who were starting to play around with things like LSD and they believed that schizophrenics were actually more tuned to real reality than, uh, than normies, basically. And while I do think there's a shred of truth there, um, there's a really, one of the most famous biologists alive right now is Robert Sapolsky. And he has a really cutting essay on this movement that happened in the 60s. And uh, it feels good to believe that about schizophrenia. And if you can recognize that it feels good to believe it, you can start to see that there's probably a bias unfolding inside of you. But like he talks about some of the specific stories of specific types of schizophrenics. 
where like this woman murdered her child and he goes and he walks it through in clinical detail about there was no part of this that was a deeper spiritual understanding about the nature of oneness or love. Uh, this was someone who was sick, whose sickness ended the life of an innocent child. And that's worth noting when it comes to this type of conversation. Another thread to bring into this entire thing is that our culture in Western society, if you are schizophrenic and you've lived within the last 50 years, the chances of you uh, being given an anti-schizophrenic medication without your consent, um, with, for sure without your informed consent, because we didn't know what it was back then, uh, changes your neurology and biology in a way that can actually exacerbate the conditions of schizophrenia. And that we are now at a point when pharmaceutical companies are trying to test a new type of antipsychotic. It's hard for them to find someone who has schizophrenia who hasn't already been put on some type of drug. The pharmaceuticals who have billions of dollars have a hard time finding test subjects who haven't already started taking an antipsychotic medication. And there was a famous study that was done by, I believe, the World Health Organization like 10 or 15 years ago, where they looked at um, the long-term outcomes of schizophrenics in first world countries compared to third world countries. And what they find is that schizophrenics in third world countries do better in the long term than schizophrenics in first world countries. And the difference in how we treat schizophrenia between first world and third world country is pharmaceuticals. And that led this journalist to write this whole fucking book that became a Pulitzer Prize nominee um, called Anatomy of an Epidemic, where he looked at the long-term efficacy of antipsychotic medication. And he has over 800 references in that book. But basically what he, the conclusion he came to is they don't help. They don't actually alleviate the schizophrenia at all. What they do at best is they numb. And that if you take them long enough, they can actually impair your brains in specific ways that if you ever try to get off of it, it seems like your condition got worse. And it's actually the withdrawal symptoms of um, being chemically dependent upon the antipsychotic medication. So there's that. And then there's the uh, Carl Jungian view of this, where he truly believed that um, none of the hallucinations or fantasies of the schizophrenic are truly random. There's information in all of them. And if you're able to listen, you can actually start to see what the schizophrenic is trying to say through their fantasies or their delusions. And it's, it's subtle and it's nuanced, but the type of people that Carl Jung had access to when he worked in the hospitals were not on the type of antipsychotics that most schizophrenics are on now. And my intuition is that the type of schizophrenic or the type of antipsychotics that most modern schizophrenics are on can create specific agitations in the body and the mind that can actually impair the, um, authentic information that is arising in the fantasies and the delusions and that it can actually muddy the waters a lot. Um, it's complicated. And my truth is that I don't even know, but that those are the things that come alive in me when I start to feel into this thing when it comes to schizophrenia. So someone just asked me what my thoughts on autism are. 
And the truth is I have not done any type of deep research on autism. Um, and so I don't know. Um, I do know that from a neurological standpoint, without looking into why there is such a dramatic rising in autism in the last 100 years that's unprecedented on any level in anything in recorded history, which is what I would want to research, um, that the physiological facts of being autistic is essentially your brain is a prediction machine. And it's always trying to anticipate what the next moment will be. And a part of being a normal functioning human is you have a decent ability to deal with the prediction being wrong. And that's how we learn. Um, for someone with an autistic brain, their ability to zoom into what they know and go deeper into what they know is exceptionally high but the emotional distress that they feel when they're not in the known and they're in the unknown is incredibly jarring to the point of almost like complete obliteration. And it's why um, there's been a lot of uh, reduced pain for people with autism if they have like noise canceling headphones. Um, if you give them a bedroom where everything stays in the way that they want it and they need it, um, and that there's a tremendous amount of ability to meet uh, that type of consciousness that's in that side of body in a way that can help it grow. Uh, but I'm really curious and doing more research on the subject, and I haven't yet, so I don't want to speak on it more. How do you architect a place where game B is played without being sucked into game A on the way? This is a great fucking question, and it's essentially what the philosophers of the Consiliency Project are trying to figure out. Where I think the game A, game B stuff can begin is with your uh, intimate relationships and your friendships and your work environment. Can you begin to cultivate the sense of we are a team as opposed to we are independent agents competing against each other? Like, can you give freely to people you love without the expectation that they're supposed to do something back for you? Uh, can you genuinely feel that when you help someone that you are actually helping yourself and that you're helping the world? Can you be honest and earnest and humble and kind, um, even when they trigger you, even if they act in the ways that you don't want them to act? And I think that if we start with ourselves and our closest relationships, we will organically begin to organize into larger groups that will eventually have the ability to, um, the one strategy that I've heard that has really stuck out is that if small communities of game B type players are able to self-organize and because of the synergistic efficiency of that type of way of relating, they produce innovations that are actually helpful to game A because it's solving real problems in the world. Like how do we turn the trash in the ocean to fuel? How do we increase, increase the effectiveness, the, the efficiency of a solar panel? Or how do we, you know, get more from a certain amount of water to do a certain amount of X? That if we outsource those innovations to game A, to genuinely help game A, the, the smart people in game A are going to begin to be like, how the fuck are you doing this? And then they'll come and ask these small communities, like, what are you doing? 
And then the answer to the what are you doing is the game B philosophy. And the idea in a idealistic world is that we'll start to eat more and more away from game A, where more game A people start to play the game B type of way of relating with each other. And it really only takes about 1%. Um, th- there's a woman who I believe uh, is a Harvard professor that looked at any civil rights movement as soon as you get three to 5% of the population to believe in the movement, that is what it takes to then create this cascade effect that eventually leads to radical change. And so the numbers might differ, but it's between like one and 7% of, of a group need to be a part of the revolution in order, if the revolution actually works, like if it's actually true, and this is a whole other side note that we don't need to go down, but if it's actually in resonance with human nature. It only takes about one to 7% of the population to adopt it before a cascade effect happens. And I think that's what we're hoping will happen with this game B shit. How do you integrate your anger? I think the first thing is to realize that your anger is your ally, that uh, you are a monkey that has evolved. And anger is one of the primary tools that every mammal on this motherfucking planet has evolved uh, in order to survive. So your anger has an intelligence. Um, A really useful map that I use is that there's three levels of anger. There's the most destructive type of anger is rage. And rage simply seeks to destroy. And then there's unclean anger. An unclean anger seeks to blame or to create guilt. And then there's clean anger and clean anger seeks to resolve. You likely feel angry when someone treats you in a way that doesn't feel right to you. You might get angry when you see people out in the world not playing the game of life in a way that feels right to you. You might feel angry when you see a corporation act in a way that doesn't feel right to you. Rage just seeks to destroy and it adds death to life. And I don't think rage is ever the proper response. Even if someone's attacking you, maybe rage is what you need to survive. But the most effective type of anger is calm anger in that type of situation where you're able to do exactly what you need to do without using excessive force to stop the situation. But I think the only place that rage makes any sense is is if it's a truly life or death situation and you need the rage in order to survive. But that's almost never actually the truth of your reality. Unclean anger is what most of us do and it's motherfucking passive aggressiveness is you saying you did this and you made me feel this way and you're a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. Or I can't believe you would do that. I, I I can't trust you. Like a good person would never do something like that, whatever it is. Um... It's still trying to put more death out into the world. It's not adding life to life. But clean anger might look something like um, what you did yesterday. um, It felt disrespectful to me. And I can feel that um, the type of relationship that I want in my life um, does X, Y, and Z. And so um, I can feel that I'm upset with you. And I can feel that me being upset is because I feel like I'm not being met. And so my request is, if you would like to continue to be in a relationship with me, that we do X, you know, and that it takes a type of anger to have uncomfortable conversations. 
but that if you don't have uncomfortable conversations when you feel angry, it turns into resentment. And resentment is the monster that eats love, as Aubrey says. Resentment will kill your relationships, whether it be professional, platonic, or romantic. And what alchemizes resentment is vulnerability. Can you share that you feel hurt? Can you share that you felt disappointed? Can you share that you feel unsafe? And then can you genuinely make a request of what you would like to see in order to feel safe or to feel seen or to feel heard? Uh, vulnerability is the uh, lifeblood of intimacy. All right, well, we've done an hour and 15 minutes. I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, I'm going to miss you guys. Uh, it's going to be hard not to be checking the Instagram because we're all addicted. But I know that one of the things that's best for me when I go into doing plant medicine is to clear my psychic space. And getting off of Instagram is how I do that. So um, today will be my last day. Uh, and I'll see you guys in probably about five weeks. Thank you so much. I love you. I hope this helped. And have a great motherfucking day.